13 of the plan. Uh, if you are visiting us, if this is your first time here, you may notice this is not super uh, a Christmassy of a, of a series that we're in right now. Um, we're preaching in Ruth, which I guess sometimes comes up when you do the genealogy as your Advent series, but, but we're not in a Christmas series. I did, I, I'm not wearing a Christmas sweater this week, but I am wearing Christmas socks. <laughs> so there's some Christmas there. The background is still red. Uh, the reason why we're not in a special Christmas service is because our goal has been to follow the whole story of the Bible from beginning to end. We started in, in September, and the goal is to meet up, uh, sync up with Easter. And so that means that we're nowhere near the Christmas story uh, in December. But I'll be making some connections. But we've been, our goal is to understand the whole story of the Bible. And if you are new to this, then we should remind everyone, you can listen to all of our sermons online. You can watch them on YouTube, or you can go to our website and listen to our podcast. You can get sermon notes, uh, so you can get all of, all of that material online. And also, there's a podcast that the ministers do every week that goes into some of the other stories that we're skipping over, goes and, and things like that, and you can find that as well on our website. It's called The Fully Grown Podcast. But as we've been looking at the story, the theme that we have found that unites the whole Bible together is this idea that the Bible is the story of God's plan to establish a place full of people who live out their purpose in his presence. This is always the plot of the Bible, that God made the world, he put people in it, he told them to rule it on his behalf, and that was their purpose, and then he came to live with them on the seventh day. And then human beings messed it up, and ever since then, God has been working to restore that plan. And the, the, the stage that we're at is when he has chosen one people, and he's going to work through that one people. And so he chose the family of Abraham and Sarah, uh, the family of Israel, and they're his people. He gave them a specific place, the land of Israel, to be theirs and to have his name on it. And he lives there with them in the tabernacle. And he has given them the law of Moses that is meant to tell them how they're supposed to live in the land of Israel. And so the idea is that during this time period, if you wanted to know who God is, you would look at Israel. And that's how God would be revealed to the world. Because you can't have a relationship with God if you don't know who he is and you don't know what he's like. So Israel's responsibility is to, um, is to show the world what God is like. Now, if you were here last week, you know that at this point in the story, we were in Judges, uh, Israel is doing a terrible job of that. They didn't push the Canaanites out of the land, and so they, they just kind of gave up and, and made treaties instead. And through that compromise, they started to get inf- be influenced by these other, these other approaches to God that were much easier and, and more magical and, and all about immediate gratification. And so they ended up living in just terrible ways that, that did not reflect God into the world. And the ending of Judges is just horrible. And when we pick up in 1 Samuel, it's still going to be in that terrible place. But in between those two books, there's a little kind of novelette, and it's called Ruth. And it's a little ray of hope in the middle of this dark valley that we're in. And, but the interesting thing about Ruth is it's not, part, it's, it's not telling the, this big meta story of Israel. It focuses on one family and one family's problems and the solution to that one little family's problems. And so it can be a little bit difficult to connect that with the whole story. And so we're going to start, instead of going straight to the coordinates, we're going to start by connecting the story of Ruth with the rest of the story of the Bible. So I'm going to, I'm going to read us the opening verses of Ruth. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. 
So a man from Bethlehem in Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. They went to Moab and lived there. Now Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left with her two sons. They married Moabite women, one named Orpah and the other Ruth. After they had lived there about ten years, both Malin and Kilian also died, and Naomi was left without her two sons and her husband. Interesting tidbit. Who is actually the main character of the story of Ruth? Who's the story about so far? It's about Naomi, right? Actually, the main character in Ruth is Naomi, because the story of Ruth is about solving the problem that Naomi is in. And we start, so the first thing we find out is her situation. And Naomi's situation is that she has lost her home, her family, and her future. Now, let me explain those. You don't get all the details in chapter 1. You actually have to go into chapter 4 to get the rest of the details about the home part. But what you find out in chapter 4 is that they are ba- like, Naomi's family is mortgaged to the hilt. They, they actually would have to buy their land back in order to be able to use it. And so when there's a famine, they don't have land that they can farm. So that's why they have to leave and go to Moab. So they've lost the family farm. It's, it's, been, it's, it's in hock. They, can't, they don't have the farm. Then they go to Moab, and Naomi's husband dies. Now, in that culture, you have to understand, main job for everyone is to keep your family going. That's the goal, is to have a family and a heritage, right? You need to keep your family going. And if your family carries the promises of God, like Israelite families do, then it's especially important that you keep your family going. So Naomi's husband dies, which means that her ability to expand the family is now done. That stage is, the, the chapter is over, right? So she marries her sons to available women. They're in Moab, so the women that are available are Moabites. So that Because now it's the son's job to carry on the family. The sons are married for 10 years and have zero children, and then they die. Which means Naomi's family is done. Right? It, the, her family is now a dead end. There is no way for her to family to continue. It's a withered branch. It's done. So she has no future. That's, that's this horrible place that she is in. And it's, it's hard enough to lose your family members. But on top of this, she's lost her purpose. It's, it's not just loss. It's also failure. Their family has failed. Question we have to ask is, why? See, if, you were, if you're reading the whole story of the Bible and you're memorizing it as you go, which I know we're all doing, right? Like you all have Deuteronomy memorized just like I do. If you had Deuteronomy memorized, then you would see a couple of red flags go up in the story that we've read, or a couple of, of signposts. First, in the time of the judges, how is Israel doing in the time of the judges? Good, bad, terrible, right? This is a time when Israel is doing terribly in their job to, relate to, uh, to reveal God to the world, okay? And here's the thing. If you have Deuteronomy memorized, you know that there are blessings and curses that come with the covenant, Okay? What basically what happens is if you're, doing, if, if you're reflecting God well into the world, then God will bless Israel because he's saying, yes, I approve of them. They are, this is accurate. The, I approve of these people. But if they fail, if they're rebelling against God, then God's not going to give them those blessings because then it seems like he's endorsing their rebellion. So in Deuteronomy, among the curses, it says, you will be cursed in the city and cursed in the country. Your basket and your kneading trough will be cursed. The fruit of your womb will be cursed and the crops of your land and the calves of your herds and the lambs of your flocks. 
When Israel is in rebellion against God, God is going to stop blessing them in the ways that people would interpret as divine blessing. Because that's the, the most powerful, the most important gods in that time were gods of fertility, the gods that could give you bountiful crops and big families. And if you didn't have bountiful crops and you didn't have big families, then God, the gods were not happy with you. And so this is a very clear signal God can send. So when you read this is in the time of the judges and they're experiencing a famine, and then their families are not able to grow, you realize we're experiencing the consequences of Israelite rebellion. Now, here's a big difference between the way the Bible looks at the situation and the way the world at that time looked at those situations. The world would have looked at a woman who wasn't able to have children and said it was her fault. The law looks at a woman who's unable to have children and say it's the, the community's fault. It's Israel's fault. There's no specific blame attached to anyone in Naomi's family. So what it tells us is that Naomi was a victim of Israel's rebellion against God. That she is living in a time when people, God's people are, have gone the wrong way, and she is caught up in that and is a victim of it. So this connects us with Naomi's plight is part of this story of Israel's plight. She is a victim of the fact that the plan has gone off the rails. And the question that we have now as we go into the story is, how can Naomi be restored when she is completely empty? She has nothing to, she, she's lost every recourse. She has no land, she has no family, she has no future. There's nothing for her to be able to redeem her family, to be able to restore her future. She has, so how could she possibly be restored at this time? Especially considering the fact that her suffering is a result of circumstances beyond her control. She can't make Israel go back to the covenant with God, and it's not like Israel's in a state where they're going to suddenly repent simply because of the suffering of one woman. She's caught up in, in the darkness of her age. Where could there possibly be hope for her? At this point, I'm going to go on a little bit of a tangent that I hadn't planned on when I wrote this, because to be honest, the last couple of days have been a little bit heavy for me. Um, nothing bad has happened to me. Uh, or to anybody in my family or anything like that, but just I've had a couple of different experiences that have, have reminded me of how much our times are like those times. And here's, here's something important that I want you to remember when you're interpreting biblical concepts into today's concepts, that the people of God today, the modern-day Israel, is not America, it's the church, right? And so when we experience a time when when there's a... Uh, the world is not going the direction that we want it to, uh, oftentimes we'll say, oh, well, it's because America is on the, wrong, or on, on the wrong track. But America is not the people of God. The church is the people of God. And what that usually means is the people of God are on the wrong, wrong track. Now, of course, we also live in a world where certain stories get amplified more than others. And so we definitely hear more about the negative things happening in the church than we do about the positive things. And I would argue that if we knew everything, we would see a lot more good happening than bad. But it's undeniable that you're going to see and hear about a lot of bad things that happen, a lot of ways that Christians in America are failing to represent Christ. You know, this can go from something as big as, on, you know, on a national scale as people starting to ask for churches to lose their tax-exempt status because they're hearing about mega churches finding hundreds of thousands of dollars in cash inside their walls. Like a plumber just opened a wall and it was full of cash. Um, it could also be as personal as walking around town and um, and 
and, ta- and seeing tears in my wife's eyes because of houses that are absolutely decked out for Christmas and very explicitly Christian. And also intermixing, like Jesus and crosses and all of that, and intermixing in their symbols of hatred and violence. And these mixed signals that are being sent out in, in the community. And it can be hard to know, what, what can we do? What can I do? How can we turn any of this around when we live in a time like this? Um, and I think that's what the story of Ruth is meant to answer. And it's a beautiful story because the th- circumstances start to change in, in just the simplest, smallest way. When Naomi heard in Moab that the Lord had come to the aid of his people by providing food for them, she and her daughters-in-law prepared to return home from there. Then Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, go back, each of you, to your mother's home. May the Lord show you kindness as you have shown kindness to your dead husbands and to me. May the Lord grant that each of you will find rest in the home of another husband. At this point, the daughters-in-law are still considered part of Naomi's family and her clan, but she's releasing them to go home and to marry into other families and be able to find hope in their own homes and not have to be widows anymore. Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye, but Ruth clung to her. Here's where we're going to do our coordinates. We're going to focus in on the protagonist of the story. The protagonist is the person who moves the story forward. The story's about Naomi, but Ruth is the one who moves the story forward. So, in another way, the story is about Ruth. And Ruth's coordinates are very interesting. Where is her home? Moab. She is from uh, a country other than Israel. She is not part of the covenant she is currently not part of the plan. She is a, she's part of the people who are supposed to be reached by the plan, but she's not in the plan, right? But she's not just any old person outside the plan. How can she meet with God? Now, at this time, there's, there's nothing that says that... It, like, like the idea was that non-Israelites would be able to come into Israel, see Israel, see what's going on at the tabernacle, and, and be able to understand God. So there's this outward-facing aspect of the covenant, right? For almost everyone... But again, if you had Deuteronomy memorized and you hear that, that Ruth is a Moabitess, then you might remember this. No Ammonite or Moabite or any of their descendants may enter the assembly of the Lord, not even to the 10th generation. For they did not come to meet you with bread and water on your way when you came out of Egypt. And they hired Balaam, son of Baor from Pethor and Aram Naharaim, I think, to pronounce a curse on you. Remember that sorcerer that was supposed to curse the Israelites? He was hired by Moab because they were doing everything they could to stop Israel from coming into the land. And so God said they're not allowed into the tabernacle, on the tabernacle grounds, up to 10 generations. So how can she meet with God? She can't. She's not allowed. There's one place where you can access God's presence on earth, and she's not allowed. Finally, what did God tell her to do? What are her obligations here? What commands has she received from God? When Naomi says, go home, what obligation does Ruth have to stay with her? Or to do anything? What has God actually asked her to do? Nothing. She has a free pass to walk away. In fact, the book of Ruth does not criticize Orpah, the other daughter-in-law who walks away. She didn't do anything wrong. She was allowed to do that. 
And she, she, that was perfectly valid. And Ruth also could have walked away. But that's not what she does. So let's look at what Ruth did. Ruth replied, Don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go, and where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you and me. What does she do? Ruth devoted herself to Naomi instead of returning home. Now, this is a decision that is so strange to us when you really think about it. Like, how would you feel if, you're, if you had a friend who was widowed and she said, you know what, I'm going to devote my entire, the entire rest of my life, everything I do is going to be focused on my mother-in-law. I'm just going to go wherever she goes. I'm just going to take care of her. That's going to be the entire rest of my life. Would that be a bit strange? Like, that's a level of devotion that we typically in our culture only really reserve for marriage. And honestly, we're about 50-50 in that area too, right? But she totally devotes herself to taking care of her mother-in-law when she has no obligation to. She commits. And that decision, a small, I mean, it's a big deal, but it's a small domestic decision for a person who's not considered important by anyone else. That small decision has huge rippling effects that change the world. But the first ripples, as they always are, are small. We're going to look at the first ripple effect of this, which is that when they go to Bethlehem, they, the only way they really, the only welfare system they have is called gleaning, where you go into the fields during harvest and you pick up whatever they may have dropped. You get the leftovers. And so Ruth goes out, and she's working, and that's what she does. She goes out every day, and she gathers what's getting dropped behind, and try, you're trying to get enough grain so that you can feed yourselves uh, you know, through the year. Okay? And she's in the middle of gathering grain. She's been working all day. It's been really hard work, and someone walks up to her. His name is Boaz, and he happens to be the owner of the field that she's working in. Boaz said to Ruth, My daughter, listen to me. Don't go and glean in another field, and don't go away from here. Stay here with the women who work for me. Watch the field where the men are harvesting and follow along with the other women. I have told the men not to lay a hand on you. And when you are th- whenever you are thirsty, go and get a drink from the water jars the men have filled. So he tells her, stay here, work in my field. Don't worry about going anywhere else and just follow my guys around. They won't stop you. What he doesn't tell her is he's also going to instruct his guys to just like leave as much grain behind as they can get away with. Just pull out chunks and drop it in front of her. He loads her up, okay? At this, she bowed down with her face to the ground, and she asked him, why have I found such favor in your eyes that you notice me, a foreigner? You know, presumably, pretty much everyone else that was gleaning in his field was uh, an Israelite. Why did he pick out the Moabite woman, and be, why was he so generous to her? Boaz replied, I've been told all about what you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband, how you left your father and mother and your homeland and came to live with a people you did not know before. May the Lord repay you for what you have done. May you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Why did Boaz decide to be generous to her? Because he knew what she was doing. He knew why she was doing it. He heard her reputation and, 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 and how hard, because the, the part I skipped over is he goes and he says to the walk, workers, who's that? And they tell him the whole story because the workers know who she is. The workers can say she's been working really hard and she's doing it for her mother-in-law. So everybody knows this story. And so when Boaz recognizes her devotion 
to her mother-in-law, Boaz wants to support that. So Ruth's devotion to Naomi inspired Boaz to be generous to her. That's the first ripple effect, is that as she devotes herself to her mother-in-law, Boaz sees that and says, yes, that is the right thing. I'm going to support that. I can get behind that. I'm going to make sure that she is able to do that. You've got a ripple effect. Then there's another ripple effect after that because Boaz's actions are going to inspire someone. See, Ruth brings home all this grain. She is loaded up with grain. She comes home, and her mother-in-law asked her, where did you glean today? Where did you work? The name of the man I worked with today is Boaz, Ruth said. The Lord bless him, Naomi said to her daughter-in-law. He has not stopped showing kindness to the living and to the dead. She added, that man is our close relative. He is one of our guardian redeemers. We'll talk about guardian redeemers in a second. But she notices that Boaz, she knows uh, uh, Naomi is connecting two things about Boaz. Number one, Boaz has noticed Ruth and, is, and likes what Ruth is doing, right? Like Ruth has made a positive impression on Boaz. Number two, Boaz is Naomi's relative. Here's what that means. To everyone, pretty much everyone in Israel, Ruth is a Moabite, which means she is not eligible to marry because you're supposed to marry within your own tribe, right? Ideally within your own clan. However, Boaz is in the clan that Ruth is married into, which means that for Boaz, Ruth is, an eligible, is eligible to be his wife. He can actually marry her. And so she recognizes, hey, this guy could marry her, and clearly he, she made a positive impression. So here we have an opportunity. So Naomi decides to play matchmaker. Now, this, this may sound cutesy to us, but this is life and death in, in this story. One day, Ruth's mother-in-law, Naomi, said to her, my daughter, I must find a home for you where you will be well provided for. See, here's the thing. What happens to Ruth when Naomi dies? What support system does Ruth have when this one older lady dies? And she's only connected to her through marriage, through a, a, a marriage that's, you know, a husband that's died. She's got no support structure. So Naomi loves Ruth and wants to provide for Ruth the same way Ruth wants to provide for Naomi. And so she says, I want to find you a way to be provided for. I want to find you a home. Now, Boaz, with whose women you've worked, is a relative of ours. See, she's emphasizing that relative part, okay? So she knows that he's eligible. Tonight, he will be winnowing barley on the thrashing floor. Wash, put on perfume, and get dressed in your best clothes. Then go down to the thrashing floor. When he lies down, note the place where he is lying. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down. He will tell you what to do. That's basically a way to uh, propose marriage in, in a different culture. Um, there really isn't a normal way for a woman to propose marriage to a man, but this is a way that she can kind of do it uh, so it's not in the public eye and, and it's, it's a way to minimize the risk. But that, that's basically, she's, she's not really proposing marriage. She's basically sending the strongest possible signal to him that she can that she wants him to propose marriage. And so the, the point of this whole plan is it's Naomi's plan to care for Ruth. So Boaz's generosity has inspired Naomi to help, find a, to help Ruth find a home of her own. 
The fact that Boaz is also on the same wavelength as Ruth and is responding to Ruth's uh, dedication makes Naomi think, hey, we might have a chance here to actually take care of Ruth. So Naomi does what, or Ruth does what Naomi told her to do, and in the middle of the night, something startled the man. He turned, and there was a woman lying at his feet. Who are you, he asked. I am your servant, Ruth, she said. Spread the corner of your garment over me, since you are a guardian redeemer of our family. Okay, now we have to talk about guardian redeemer, okay? Because there are two options here that could happen between Ruth and Boaz. Boaz could marry Ruth, and Ruth would become part of Boaz's family, and now she's got a family, but she's not part of Naomi's family, okay? The other option is, and, and, and the other option would be for Boaz to act as kinsman redeemer, which would mean that instead of marrying Ruth into his family, he marries into her family. He buys her property, or uh, Naomi's family property, he buys it out of Hawk, and, he be, he, and then his children are considered part of that clan, and they're able to carry on the family. That's what a kinsman redeemer is. Because if a, if a God gave land to specific families, and the idea was it should stay in the family forever. So if a man died without children, then his brother would marry his widow, and their first child would be considered the son of the dead man, right? So that the family line could continue. So he has two options. He could marry Ruth into his family, or he could marry into her family. And, Ruth, and, and that second one is a much bigger ask, and that's what Ruth asks him to do. Because here's the thing. The book of Ruth is not a love story about Ruth and Boaz. It is a love story about Ruth and Naomi. Because Ruth asked Boaz to marry her so that he will take care of both of them. She proposes marriage to Boaz out of love for Naomi. Now, Boaz understands exactly what she's doing. And in fact, the, the fact that that's what she's asking for is the reason he says yes. Because his response is, The Lord bless you, my daughter. This kindness is greater than that which you showed earlier. You have not run after the younger men, whether rich or poor. And now, my daughter, don't be afraid. I, I will do for you all you ask. Notice he says, this kindness is greater than the kindness before because she didn't just go after whatever man you know, she happened to fancy. She specifically went after Boaz because Boaz could solve Naomi's problem. Because her marrying Boaz is pretty much the only possible way that Naomi could, have, could be restored. And that's what she's actually asking him to do. And Boaz recognizes that as an even bigger deal than what first made him respect her in the first place. He says... This kindness is greater. Now that word, that word is a huge deal. The word for kindness there is chesed, which most of the places it's used in the Bible, it's used to refer to the way God loves. In fact, if you remember the story we told in Exodus where God declares to Moses who he is, he says, I am gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. The word for steadfast love is chesed devoted love. The majority of the times that that word is used, it is used for the way God loves his people. That is godly love. We have no word for it in English, which is why it's translated in so many different ways. But what's happening here is that Boaz is looking at what Ruth has done, and he's recognizing that Ruth is showing godlike love. 
that her love for Naomi is the kind of love that God shows for his people. That devotion, that dedication that's not going to abandon someone, that's not going to run away when it gets hard, that's going to continue to seek the other person's good, that is God's love. And this Moabite widow is the one showing it. In the time of the judges when everybody is, is going the wrong way, here is a Moabite widow loving people the way God loves people. And Ruth's godly devotion inspired Boaz to devote himself to Ruth and Naomi. Boaz looks at that and he says, yes, that's it. That's what we're supposed to be doing. That's what I'm supposed to be doing. I'm on board. And he agrees to go through on the whole thing. Now, as you go into chapter 4, there's this little surprise that, hey, it turns out there's actually another guy who is closer related than Boaz, and so maybe he's going to want to do it. Uh, and so they, they go through that whole process, and they figure out, he says, no, I don't want to. He doesn't want to take on the family and the land. He just wanted the land, but he can't. You have to take both. So he says no, and Boaz ends up, and, and, they, and Boaz is able to marry her. Now, here's the interesting thing about this story. In all the other episodes we've done, about half of the story is what do people do. About half of the story is what does God do. Notice, God hasn't done anything yet. Actually, the first struggle I had with the sermon was figuring out the three points of what God did. But God only does one thing in the whole story, really. And it happens once they get married. It says, So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. When he made love to her, the Lord enabled her to conceive, and she gave birth to a son. Now, one of the complaints that people will make in the modern day about this story is it seems to fit into the whole idea that women are only fulfilled by childbearing. But that's not the point. The point is to remember what is the challenge of this story. What is the problem that needs to be solved? And the problem that needs to be solved is the failure of Naomi's family. And so that's why when the child is born, it's important to look at why they are so happy about the birth of this child. The women of the town said to Naomi, Praise be to the Lord who this day has not left you without a guardian redeemer. For your daughter-in-law who loves you and who is better to you than seven sons has given him birth. Then Naomi took the child in her arms and cared for him. The women living there said, Naomi has a son. You see, this son is considered Naomi's grandchild. And this son carries on her family. So through the Ruth and Boaz have done, by, marrying, by getting married, they've restored her family. By purchasing the land, uh, Boaz has restored the home. And now, by having a child, they have restored the future. This family is not extinct anymore. So God gave Ruth a child to restore Naomi's future. And it solves the problem that we started with at the beginning. This is where God steps in and acts. He gives them a child. This is a lovely story. And, and it's, um, it's, it's a very positive story in the middle of a very dark part of the Bible. It's like a breath of fresh air before you plunge back into the darkness of 1 Samuel. But I think there's some great things that we learn about God here. And it's, the first one is how little he does in this story. And I puzzled over this as I was trying to figure out what are the three things God does. And I realized he doesn't do three things. He does one thing. Why does he only do one thing? Well, I think it's because of the other interesting thing about Ruth, which is there are no bad guys in Ruth. Nobody is rebellious in Ruth. There are a couple of people who don't go above and beyond. Orpah, the other, uh, other daughter-in-law, doesn't go above and beyond. And the other relative at the end of the story doesn't redeem the land. But those are things that they're able to do. Nobody's evil or rebellious. 
And what that tells me is that this story unfolds basically the way God wants it to. As these, every person, in the, all the main characters of this story, they love each other, and they're devoted to each other, and they do what they can for each other, and that must be the way God wants it, because he doesn't intervene. Because I, I'm convinced that if God's people live out the plan he's given us, he doesn't have to intervene. It's people like Gideon who won't listen to God and won't do what he tells them to do. He has to do the magic tricks with the fleece and stuff. But when God's people are doing what he's called them to do, these acts of devotion, God doesn't need to intervene. He didn't need to step in in any other place. So that tells me that God's preferred way of working in the world is through small acts of devotion by his people. That's the way God prefers to shape this world because he wants a partnership with us. He wants to do it with us. He doesn't want to have to step in and override us and shake us up. He wants to be working in partnership with us. And so his preferred way of shaping the world is through the the acts of devotion that we take each day. And when we recognize that about God, it helps us also understand why God chose to work through someone like Ruth. See, Ruth didn't have a whole lot of influence Ruth wasn't going to have anybody, she wasn't going to be able to put together an army to deliver them from the Midianites. You know, she wasn't going to be considered great in any way that the world really cared about at that point. But, and she wasn't even allowed in the tabernacle. She wasn't even part of the people who were supposed to define God for the world. But, she was the kind of person who devoted herself to her mother-in-law. And that's what God was looking for. So what that tells us is that God looks for people with godly character, not not perfect qualifications. See, as we look at the world around us and we see it going the wrong way and we see the um, people who call themselves Christians often participating in that, we think, how can I possibly affect any of that? If only I had a bigger platform, if only I had a louder megaphone, if only I had more money, more influence, or more gifts, or what could I possibly do? And the fact is that that's not what God is looking for. God is looking for people who will be devoted to others, who will take what God has put in front of them of whatever size and use it according to his plan and his character. That's what he's looking for. You don't need a bigger platform. You don't need more influence. You don't need more qualifications. You need exactly what God has given you, and you need to use it the way he calls us to use it. That's how God changes the world. And what we, for me, the despair is that, and, and sometimes it's out of that same fear about where the world is going that we abandon the little things God has given us to do and we try to clamor after the big things and we cause more problems. And I think it's because we don't believe that the little, God can actually use the little things to create big change. And that's why the twist ending of Ruth is so important. Because the story of Ruth is not just the story of how Naomi got restored. It's also, as you find out in this little twist at the end, the story of how Israel got restored. Because that son, that son that she had, they named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Okay, if you don't know, David is one of the most important characters in the Old Testament, and he is the founder of the royal dynasty of Israel. And he is also, short-term spoiler alert, he is the one who's finally going to drive the Canaanites out of Israel. And that is the family that Boaz and Ruth have restored to Naomi. They didn't just save some little family that wasn't going to do anything. It was Ruth's act of devotion that restored this family that would become the family of David and have huge impact on the future of Israel. So even God's biggest projects are built on small acts of devotion. 
And Ruth never knew any of this, right? She never knew that this is where her family went. She never knew that this was the consequence of her small act of devotion. But this is how God used it. And then even David didn't know how much further those ripple effects went because of, you know, they're going to keep, the, that family line of David is going to continue on. It's going to continue on. And generations later, another child is going to be born. And that birth is what we celebrate in December because it is out of the line of David that Jesus is born. That is such amazing impact for one small act of devotion to have. And as we remember that, as we think about that child that, that, was, became, that this family led to, it also helps us find hope in this moment as we look at the world around us because your small act, you don't have to hope that your small act of devotion is going to result a few generations later in some king who's going to change the world. Like it was mentioned in our communion meditation last week, we hope backwards because that child who's going to change the world has already been born. Right? The child that gives us hope has already been born. Isaiah prophesied, to us a child is born, to us a son is given. And the government will be on his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. God has given us a son, just like he gave Naomi a child. He has given us a child who will restore our futures too. And so as we go out into a world that we can't control, a world that is unraveling in ways that may frighten us, and is going well in some ways that we just don't see, as we go out into that world, we have hope because we know that we have already been given a child who changes everything. And we are not doing small acts, hoping that something big will come out of them. We are doing small acts of devotion that build on the biggest thing that has ever happened in the universe, the birth of Jesus Christ that changes everything. And if you are feeling like you're in a place like Naomi, where you are feeling empty and you don't have hope and you don't know how you're going to be restored, that hope has already happened in Jesus and it is available for you today. And every person can be restored by Jesus Christ. So as we close, I'm going to ask you to consider taking some next steps. The biggest step you can take is to give your life to Jesus. If you're in a place where you are empty and you need something, you know that you need more, Jesus Christ is available to you this very day. Today is the best day to make that decision. So we encourage you to come forward during our last song to talk to one of our staff members. If you're watching online, get a hold of us or get a hold of a, a Christian that you trust. Give your life to Jesus because he can restore you and make you full. If you're looking for a community to be a part of as we go through this life together, we encourage you to consider coming to one of our Connect classes where you can find out more about who we are and what we do as a church and how you can be a part of it. Our next one is going to be next Sunday at 1230. We'll have some food and you can attend and talk and find out from us about what our church is doing and how you can join in. If you want to be a part of that, you can check the box on your Connect card. You'll also see boxes on your Connect card for joining a small group which is a way you can form closer relationships with a small group of people who will pray with you and, and go through life with you. You can also join a service team. And with a service team, it gives you an opportunity to give back, to show acts of devotion to people in our church and in our community. 
And we love to give you an opportunity to do that. So I ask you to consider what step God is calling you to take now as we stand and sing our final song.